and welcome to the Native and the Transplant. I am your native, Alex Johnson. And I am your transplant, Jen Bryant. Welcome. Welcome, Jen. Yeah, How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Today was a, a productive day, so. That's good to hear. And we do have a special guest coming up with us, uh, Mr. John Mark Patterson. Welcome, sir. Alex, Jen, good to be here. Yeah, Thank you for coming on. Before we dive into it, our first sponsor for this episode is Aslan Home Lending. They are an equal housing lender, NMLS 1868120. They are here for all of your residential home loan needs. So whether you are looking for your first home or your dream home or wanting to take advantage of those still super low interest rates on doing a rate and term or grabbing some money out of uh, from your equity to be able to handle that project that you've been putting off, definitely give Aslan Home Lending a call, 970-685-0183. All right, so it's been an interesting week. I first topic right out of the gate is Larimer County and Fort Collins. I know Fort Collins in their um, city council meeting last night, um, or on Tuesday, they're already talking about banning oil and gas within the city of Fort Collins, and then our new, newly elected county commissioners are already saying that that's going to be a topic of discussion. What are your, what are your guys' thoughts on that? Well, first out of the gate, what I actually want to bring up is that it wasn't a, a meeting. It was a working session, so they didn't open it up for anybody else to listen to. I have, I have a significant issue with that on something like this that impacts the, the county that high. Um, if you're going to have that kind of conversation, it should not be behind closed doors. Interesting. I can't help but wonder how much oil and gas production is inside the city limits of Fort Collins. I don't think very much at all. Um, I think next to none. Symbolic gestures are sometimes the best kind. <laughs> it's, it certainly seems that way. So we're definitely um, just in the past couple of years, we have seen this where everybody, or not everybody, but definitely it was uh, voted down as far as Amendment 112, uh, as far as the restrictions on oil and gas. And then when Governor Polis took office, he then passed Senate Bill 181. Um, so I know there's been an awful lot of conflict ever since that passed, um, being the fact that constituents voted it down initially, and then they just kind of rammed it through. And I know that Weld County is struggling and has been struggling with Senate Bill 181. And with the shutdown of the Keystone Pipeline, which that, I have issues with when you have a project with like the Keystone Pipeline that the entire thing after it has been built they have a full plan of reclamation for any of the lands that they tear up to put it back the exact same way that it was and to operate at a zero a net zero carbon emission right and yet somehow putting in that pipeline is worse for the environment than using trucks and using the highway systems and all of that stuff. I don't know. I want to get your thoughts on that. Well, I can tell you right now, just full disclosure, my husband uh, used to be in oil. Unfortunately, uh, as soon as that bill passed uh, the 181, um, which I firmly believe was a broad sweep of power and completely ridiculous. I, I'm still angry about it. <laughs> all right, because, I mean, that's my livelihood. All right, and, and the reality of it is you, you can't make a move like that when your constituents vote for something you are you're there to do the work for them okay and that kind of broad sweep of power is completely unacceptable in my eyes i'm not a fan of polis um there, he's done some good things but i feel like we can say that about pretty much anybody in office mostly uh, caveat my problem <laughs> is though <laughs> i would like to see a study on what kind of economical economical impact is going to be on this keystone pipeline being deconstructed now 
we had to take this thing apart, okay? So it wasn't meant to be taken apart. Now we have an economic impact or, and an ecological impact, right, on mm-hmm. taking that down. You know, I think we always need to think about environmental stewardship and reclamation responsibility. I, I think this industry is being unfairly singled out. It's been carefully regulated in Colorado for many years. Um, I think it should also be a goal of our country to be industrially and uh, with energy self-sufficient as possible and not depend on unproven technologies or foreign sources of energy and technology. Um, and I thought these were... This is a terrific industry that was very innovative and was providing many high-paying jobs. Uh, but perhaps those aren't the jobs that uh, our current leadership thinks that we should have in Colorado. Well, here's the thing, though. It, it's not just about the high-paying jobs, okay? Because you got guys all the way at the top, you know, your drillers, your company men, all of those people. They're making pretty good money, all right? But now it's that goes down to your derrick hands and your water truck drivers and the people that are maintaining the land, the security guards, all of that. It's not just that one little group of people that they're saying the impacts, right? It, you're talking, and then that sole provider in a lot of cases, especially in oil households, tends to be a sole provider. Now we're taking the income away from them and we got to figure out a way to get them jobs, but typically that's the only thing they know. That's a good point. I have several clients who are have been contractors to producers in this industry, and uh, unfortunately there are a lot of bankruptcies being declared right now and a lot of jobs and opportunities collapsing for people, so I don't like to see that. So how do you think that this will, if our Larimer County commissioners decide to ban oil and gas in Larimer County, how do you think this will impact people? How many... Um, and this is one of the things that I want to look up exactly how many wells are in Larimer County. I know not nearly as much as uh, over in Weld County, but those have even started going away. And so looking at even if we're just impacting, say, 1% of the population, what, what does that look like? But then even if that 1% of the population and their lack of tax revenue, mm-hmm. what does that look like to already city of Loveland? We've had two of the um, council people on as far as with Olson and with Samson, and both of them. The one thing that they did agree on is they were frustrated that the 1% increase in sales tax got voted down in the city of Loveland because city of Loveland does need more revenue to be able to maintain and especially to increase, um, or not increase, but to uh, handle the increase in population that we're expected to have. I I think it'll have a definite effect at the margins and and right now we need every bit we can manage people who don't have jobs can't go out and shop in loveland stores or eat in loveland restaurants so it's, it's a it's a dilemma i just hope or eat outside in loveland uh, restaurants. Yeah. Yeah. bring the hey, inside outside Alex. <laughs> yeah exactly there's tents come on <laughs> i just hope they balance these all these factors and would they try to make these considerations so so Go right ahead. Okay, so to that end, I I was reading a letter that was written to the council. um, I think it was in 2019, but it was in the same issue, and and it was brought up uh, recently with the whole special private meeting, I guess we can call it, honestly, um, with this meeting coming around and them them having this work session around it. It was talking about how this land that, that specifically will be very heavily affected, they have labeled it the oil field quote unquote, right? And the owner of the property has had that property for some time, like decades, okay? We're talking decades. The, the problem now, the people that are, of course, very stop oil, you know, ban it here in Larimer County, wherever, 
the only reason they're doing this, or maybe not the only reason, but one of the reasons they're doing it is because development is starting to encroach on this property, and they're saying, nope, you have to be back 2,000 feet or whatever it is, okay? But they're encroaching on the property that the guy has had his business there for decades. No. That feels very (laughs) DIA-esque to me. Well, either DIA-esque or, (laughs) um, you know, growing up here, it's a lot like landfill. Where with the landfill in between Loveland and Fort Collins, and then all of a sudden these big houses started getting built just to the north of the landfill, and all of a sudden the complaints started, uh, the smell and all of that. And you look at it and go, okay, you do realize that before you built the, your house there, or before you bought your house there, that there was a landfill just down the road. <laughs> right. This is like moving <laughs> next door to a meth head and then complaining about it. Yeah. I mean, you knew you moved in <laughs> next door to them. It, it's very obvious, right? I, I mean, certainly, I, I just think that you, you start to say things like we're banning that in our in our county. What's next? Well, you picked on Governor Polis earlier. I understand that he has property on the northern edge of Boulder County, just south of the Larimer County line. Yep. And uh, he was certainly aware that there were oil and gas operations there when he bought that property. But... Yeah. He wasn't happy about the oil and gas operations there. All right, so now we're going to shut it down, right? It is personal gain. Yeah, but I mean, he's still able to own part or own um, shares in oil and gas company and not think twice about that. Well, so let's just hope the furnaces <laughs> keep coming on and there's fuel for our cars. And, well, yeah. you're right, exactly. Because I, I think the people that say, well, we, we don't want to have. Uh, drilling in Larimer County or Wealth County or whatever, forget the idea that this, we don't want to have foreign dependency, Mm. okay? Especially not on oil because then we're at the mercy of OPEC and whoever else is involved, right? But if we can't produce ourselves, that's where it's headed. Yeah, and one of the things I even read uh, today is that they're anticipating, we've already seen a jump in gas prices. Uh, We've already seen anywhere, it's been anywhere from 15 to 30 cent jump thus far. Uh, it's since the 20th of January, and they're anticipating that we will hit $3 a gallon average in the next eight weeks. So it's interesting to see what's going to happen with that moving forward. But speaking of oil and gas is overall transportation. And I know that one thing that we've been dealing with here in northern Colorado is the expansion of I-25. If you have driven to Denver or you've driven up to Wellington, anything of that sort, you definitely have been caught in that construction on I-25. And as of uh, Tuesday, there was a 17-car pileup. And this was just north of 402. We had shared it on our Facebook page on the Native and the Transplant. Please follow us on Facebook um, for up-to-date information with what is going on around Colorado. Um, but that's what that area, just north of 402, is when the northbound lanes dogleg over into the southbound lanes and then continue on until after 34 when they go back to the north side. Um, it's interesting to see what's been happening now, especially with um, with the construction as far as the increase in car accidents and major wrecks, especially in that area. Have, have you guys been seeing much of this? Well, we saw that one with the two semis, right? Mm. That um, they had it kind of sandwiched a vehicle in between the two yes, of them. Yes, that was right there on the southbound lanes. Yeah, exactly. So we saw that happen, and I... I don't know exactly the whole structure of it and why it would have, I mean, it definitely bottlenecks, right? Uh, but that one, they were actually concerned about the bridge, like the structural integrity of the bridge. You know, it took a lot of regional cooperation among local governments just to accelerate the timetable to build uh, an expansion of the interstate up here. 
I, I think we're always going to be chasing that because CDOT doesn't seem to prioritize northern Colorado very much. I think we'll have a monorail to uh, Vail before <laughs> <laughs> we really address the problems up here. Yeah. Do you guys know a whole lot about the overall expansion on I-25? Not enough. You mean about the regional cooperation we've had? <laughs> yes. Yeah, as well as what what they're planning. So the, the nice part about it, the overall um, dollar amount is we're just under a billion dollars for the overall expansion. So if you, it, 60 out of Longmont to Wellington is, so uh, from 60 to 56 in Berthoud, that's section five. Okay. From Berthoud up to Crossroads is section six, and then from Crossroads up to Mulberry is section seven, and then Mulberry uh, north um, to Wellington is section eight. So the billion dollars that we're going to be spending and the overall cooperation that they had, and even when um, Scott James was mayor of, of Johnstown, Johnstown cooperated. You have um, every single town up and down the front range that has put money in for this expansion. But even then, they're only doing Section 6 and Section 7 right now. And when I was talking with the people at CDOT, I had to chuckle because Section 5, so right after the Berthoud Curve as you're heading south, and then you go up, up the hill, and then it bottlenecks back down to two lanes. Mm -hmm. Right. They don't have enough money right now to do Section 5. And so they are calling that a strategic choke point. So that way it pisses off enough people, enough residents, that residents will actually call into CDOT, complain, so that way CDOT will allocate the funds for it. Okay, so just pause for a second. <laughs> so we have um, complaint-based highway <laughs> programming now? Okay, sorry. Do you have that number so we can go ahead and let yeah, everybody right. know to call? <laughs> I don't have that number. Yeah, we'll find but that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is something that we'll definitely be sharing. But um, I'm hoping that they, especially after this last 17-car pileup that happened on Tuesday, that something's going to change a little bit. Um, whether they lower the speeds down there or what, what they're going to do to be able to try and manage that area. I, you know, it's beyond, I'm not, I'm not in construction. I'm not especially in road construction, so I don't know what they can do, but that's definitely a severe area that we've got to be watching out for. And I'd, I'd like to see a rail option, but that's sometimes just not realistic given the density and the, the patterns of, of where people live and where they work. But it'd be nice to re release some of the pressure from the interstate. Well, and that's one thing that they are going to be doing is with the Bustang. So the Highway 56 and, and I-25, the Berthoud Curve, which, fun fact, do you know why there is the Berthoud Curve? No. Fill me in. So I didn't – I was born and raised in Loveland. Yeah, me too. And well, <laughs> we'll get to that. <laughs> not quite. And uh, did not realize why there was the Berthoud Curve until about two years ago. And I guess the farmer who used to own the land had a barn. And the barn, he refused to sell it. He refused to get rid of it. And so they ended up building I-25 and put in the curve to bypass his land and his barn. Huh. And wow. from the guy that told me all of this, and he's a, an old timer that I was here when it was constructed, he also said that uh, rumor has it that the day that I-25 opened, the barn burned down. Oh, are you serious? <laughs> Too good a story. That's great. Fantastic. So, but with the Berthoud Curve, so they're going to be straightening, straightening that out. Okay. I-25 will go over 56, and then there's going to be a gap in between the northbound and southbound lanes that will be a Bustang terminal. And then they're doing another Bustang terminal just north of 34. 
Um, I'm glad to see so that. I've used Bustang, and I think it's a great way to get to downtown Denver. You have. Yeah. I, I've actually never spoken to a person. They say that about 96,000 people ride Bustang annually. Obviously, 2020 is going to be a little bit differently or different than the 2019 yeah. numbers. Well, I was hard on CDOT earlier with that monorail comment, so <laughs> I'll say something nice because, yeah, that, that takes you right into Union Station. Uh, it's quicker than driving, and, of course, you don't have to park when you get there. And so when I have a meeting in downtown Denver or can easily connect to something, I've that I can work all the way down or read or something like that. It's I, It was great experience. That's good. So let's hope in the post-COVID age they gear up again. Yes. And so with with them putting in the Bustang terminals up and down I-25, I think that's going to help. Mm-hmm. And then it's going to be um, when they finish this session, uh, section, um, it's going to be a two plus one as far as they're putting in a managed lane. So we all love the toll lanes. Mm-hmm. Um, but looking into the actual statistics on how they manage a toll lane versus in Denver, if you remember the T-Rex project and how that eliminated cl- uh, <laughs> the congestion for all of about 30 seconds and then it was back. <laughs> yeah. So the Ugh. point of the managed lanes is to not have that happen again. Okay. But the bus tanks are able to ride in the managed lane and then easily get off without having to cross traffic. So I think it's going to be good. Um, we've got another 18 months or so as they finish out 56. They're finishing up crossroads. They've got 34 that they're going to be starting on. Hmm. So it's going to be a pain in the neck and in the congestion for at least another two years probably is what we're looking at. But I will say that the one benefit that we do have right now is that they did allocate the additional $150 million. So that way they are expanding each side. So that way when what's going to happen is the congestion is going to grow, they're able to add that third lane with just essentially restriping instead of actually having to go back through and put in another additional lane. So at that point in time, it'll be three plus one on each side. Very good. That's so, yeah. fantastic. Glad yeah. for the update. I, so that birthed curve, though, I, that's, what yeah. I, that's why I'm here. That's, that, that's good information well, right there. I, I want to go back to that strategic choke point thing. Um, let's make sure to put the number up for CDOT on the website or on the Facebook page because the thing about that is is what that tells me is we don't really care. We'd like to do that. It's going to cost a lot of money. We can't afford it. So we need the public to, to start getting angry that so many accidents are happening there. Yeah, and I think once we once we see six uh, section six and section seven completed, then at that point in time, you're definitely going to start seeing all of the choke points. You're going to start seeing everything um, ease up within those sections, and then it's just going to exasperate. Am I saying that correctly? Probably that too. That <laughs> uh, too the yeah. problem. Exacerbate. As, <laughs> exacerbate. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> oh god make worse <laughs> thank you john mark i appreciate it um uh, we have a lawyer in the house <laughs> but it's going to definitely make worse the issue once uh once you finish climbing the berthed hill and it, it comes back down to the two lanes but they're estimating that section five is going to run roughly 200 to 250 million dollars to expand it so where's that money coming from uh, it's a private part. Uh, pi- Sorry, I'm having trouble talking tonight. Uh, it's a private-public partnership, and this is part of the reason why they're also doing the managed lanes. Is because they couldn't come up with all of the funds initially, and so what they're doing is they actually some of the money. I think 
I will have to double check, but I believe about 50% of the money to be able to do this is coming from private ownership. And that's what who is going to be taking care of the managed lanes and they're going to be receiving the tolls back to cover that cost. And so I used to always get frustrated. I'm going, okay, we're spending our tax dollars for public roads. Why on earth are we dealing with toll roads or doing an express toll lane? And it wasn't until I actually dived into it and understood, okay, the only way that this is happening, the way it's happening right now, and not having to wait an additional five to 10 years of what they estimated to be able to actually have all of the funds is through this public-private partnership. Well, there's an economic case for these managed lanes and toll lanes, but I know some states and municipalities in the around the country have sold their souls for short-term gain by selling off these networks to private companies. So I don't know the details of this arrangement. I hope it's a good balanced one to make a make it good for the public and the private both. So, <laughs> Absolutely, and so. I'd love to get somebody from CDOT on to be able to give us a little bit more insight. So, and then uh, one other thing, your kid's back in school there, Jen? Uh, Part-time. Part-time? Yeah, so we're back to that little wishy-washy, what are we doing every day thing. They're on opposite schedules. It's awesome. Yeah. You got some sarcasm cool. there. You may want to check it. Uh, no, I actually <laughs> want to admit that sarcasm to come through like that. I'm not pleased with how this is this is working out at all, and I think we're using our kids as, as guinea pigs. I, I, You know my feelings on that anyway, but the, the reality of it is it, they're not learning anything, and my house is a mess. Yeah, so I know that all of the, at least the school districts within Northern Colorado have gone back to in-person school, although um, my daughter's in elementary school, so she goes back five days a week, no issues, has to wear the mask, do all of that stuff, but when you get into middle school and then high school, they're doing a, a quasi-in-person, at-home learning... We're calling it hybrid. Hybrid, Okay. Mm -hmm. You don't seem too happy with this whole system. It was my frown, obvious. Okay, so <laughs> apparently the first week of February, so probably it's, that's next week. Yes. Uh, <laughs> wow. Um, next week, though, that they, they will be going back for an entire week, and, and the way my daughter explained it was it's just to see what happens. And that's how our teachers explained it. Like, let's see what happens. Let's just give this a try. So as far as I'm concerned, I, I mean. And what school district are your kids in? Thompson. Thompson. Yep, okay. Thompson R2J. Yeah. So, John, Mark, do you have kids in school? A uh, 14-year-old in our household had a miserable freshman year at my alma mater, Thompson Valley High School. And <laughs> yes. Oh, man. We have, you know, it's, it's, it's tough in our house. You know, I, I, my wife's a Loveland High graduate, so I'm from the wrong side of the tracks in her view. But, um, no, it's just been so tough for him. I mean, trying to get uh, a student this age a, a real – rich experience of going to school and being with friends and learning new things. And it's, to be honest, one of the things I didn't want for him was to have him stare at a screen any more than he had been doing already. And here we are, we've been in this, this nightmare of staring at a screen and not knowing what's going on, um, trying to make a transition to being in high school. And we just have given up and disenrolled him and have begun homeschooling. We figured if it was all on our shoulders anyway, we might as well pick a curriculum that was better for him and give him more attention. So we've kind of bitten the bullet and done that, even though we also have a four-year-old and a two-year-old in the house. So wow. there's lots of learning going on. <laughs> so uh, have you seen this happen with a lot of people that you may be friends with where they're unenrolling their kids from public school? And are you seeing a, a jump or a, an overall spike in homeschool, just overall homeschooling versus public? 
Well, I've kind of been on the fringes of it for a long time and known a lot of people who homeschooled, and I think there is a, a steady increase. I think some of the uh, public charter schools and private schools have seen a jump in interest because they've been in person, nearly all of them, this whole school year with no problems at all and much better results for the kids. And so I don't say this with any joy. I, I taught high school for five years. My mother was a teacher. My grandfather was a teacher. So I've always been supportive of good teaching and good schools, but maybe I'm also a little more critical of when I think they're falling short. And it's not been a good experience for him. I can't speak for every other family. Certainly can't speak for every other student, but I think we're doing the right thing by saying this institution has failed this student and we've got to do better for him. Hmm. Would you say that it's failed just the one student or is this sort of a, is, is it like a case by case thing or do you think it's a broad issue? Well, dangerous territory here, but I think we're starting to see uh, a collapse of some of our institutions that we've taken for granted for so long. And I wouldn't say it's just local public school districts, I think we're going to see tension and strain and the failure of a lot of colleges and universities in the near future because they sold a unique educational in-person experience and kept larding on the um, amenities to justify thousands of additional administrators and incredibly escalated tuition prices. And now who can see the value of that when we're being told, I'll give you an example, in my alma mater, Perhaps I shouldn't name it here, but I was a scholarship <laughs> student there. Now, uh, now the average cost, full price to attend a year there is seventy-five thousand dollars. <laughs> Holy Sorry, cow! Sorry, choked on my my beer there. <laughs> <It's> okay. <laughs> How do you explain to parents, even the the most uh, wealthy, credential-seeking parents in the world, that it's a great idea to spend that kind of money to have Zoom classes? And how do you look at the the half scholarship student who's going deeply into debt for this great experience? and say, well, you don't get a discount anymore either because just we're just going to pretend this Zoom experience is just as good. So there are cracks showing, and they're here local, and they're in these institutions around the country. And I'm always – one way to describe me, Alex, is I am pessimistic in the short term but optimistic in the long term. <laughs> I, see I, like a lot, I see a lot of these problems ahead, but I also see – uh, the resilience of people figuring out how to rebuild these institutions into something that serves us better, too. So it's going to be a rough ride, but I think we'll get through this, too. That's one of the things that I always look at when people ask me about 2020, because 2020 was a rough year yeah. for everybody. And I have some personal experiences that I went through in 2020 um, that that made it even more difficult. Um, but... Uh, I, the thing that I love about 2020 is it gave us sight. It gave us sight as far as where the problems are. It gave us sight as far as far as who is taking advantage of their power that they've been given as far as public officials, elected officials. It gave us the sight to see where all of these issues are. And just to go back to your point, as far as seeing the cracks in the system, even within our education system, mm -hmm. and seeing the differences of how top-heavy an awful lot of our school districts are right with with administrators and seeing how our teachers are being failed even by that as well I think that's right one thing I noticed um, we had all summer to try to adjust and what the schools rolled out was a canned curriculum that did not respond nimbly at all to the situation here and I contrasted that with my neighbors who run restaurants and, and taverns and small shops. 
and how they just every day were coming up with new ideas and new creative thoughts and new attempts to serve people and reach people while following what were sometimes seemingly arbitrary rules that were changing day by day. Yeah. And I just wish some of that nimbleness had been part of our education establishment as well. Okay, so I, I just I tend to agree with you on that level, um, but I do want to point out um, kudos to the teachers, right? Because these people are coming to work every day or they're online every day and they're trying to manage these kids and they were given that sort of canned response, right? Um, <laughs> if they were <laughs> lucky, the right I know, I know right. even with Pooter School District, that's part of the reason why their superintendent stepped down is because they were reaching out to the the to the parents before they were reaching out to the teachers and letting them know what was going to happen. Oh, uh, that's exactly my point. Is that I don't I don't want it to that to sound like we're bashing teachers because I I did not get that from you at all. I think it it's this idea that we're going to make this work. It's fine. To be honest with you, I've told my kids this year is basically a mulligan. Mm. I mean, I how do you get mad about something when it's not even a real education? <laughs> so, and the interesting part is right now you have down in Denver that talking about adjusting the overall grading scale. And I've heard a lot of feedback one way or the other as far as, so like an A would be now 100% down to an 88%, then a B would be an 87% down to uh, 76% and, and carried out. And it's interesting where the United States with our grading scale as far as a 10 point grading scale is uncommon in the developed world. I have a couple of buddies who live over in England, and they were shocked when they came over here and saw a 10-point grading scale, because in England, it is 100% uh, down to a 70% is a version of an A. And then you have a 10-point grading scale beyond that. And so they were dumbfounded by our metrics and how we, we grade our students. And so it's interesting that the uh, dynamic that's coming out of just having this conversation and what we look at. I grew up, and one of the schools that I went to was a private uh, private Baptist school, and they were on a seven-point grading scale. <laughs> and so seeing the differences between all of these, I think this is definitely going to be something that's going to come out in the future as far as how do we actually grade our students. Right. Well, one of the things that I took a really big issue with um, with this online learning in my – uh, I, I didn't get to Mama Bear as much as I wanted to um, because there was an issue with one of my son's grades. Uh, but the instructor had made a comment on the grade uh, that my son had given up at one point. And I felt like that was a totally biased opinion. Like, that's, that's subjective. Do not grade my child on something subjective. Grade them on objective. You know, they have this participation grade, and then they have the physical what you turned in grade. And that, that was one of the issues I took with the Thompson School District. And I, I do believe that people are doing the best they can, but because I, I will always assume good intent, but I, fe I feel like doing that actually worked against our kids. Hmm. You know? Well, let's dive into the interview. We <laughs> already enjoyed hearing your hot takes on a couple of the topics that we had um, today to discuss. Um, but first and foremost, so again, we have John Mark Patterson here. Um, he is a local attorney, and to start off with, the same question that we ask every single guest that we have on our show, are you a native, are you a transplant? And thanks for the introduction, Alex. Uh, you warned everybody I'm an attorney, so I have to, have to say <laughs> my answer to your question is a little bit complicated, but I'll try to be brief, as the lawyers always say, until they aren't. Um, Fantastic. So my, uh, I heard um, 
your producer Lance in an earlier show say he was a transplant from Missouri. He is. And yeah. my family transplanted from Missouri in January of 1891. So they got off the train station in Loveland and have been here ever since. And uh, even my dad was born in the, an old you, clinic. You aren't that old, though. No, no, that's, those are my great-great-grandparents. <laughs> my great-grandmother was a babe in arms then. But my dad was serving in the United States Marine Corps. So even though he was born in Loveland and his mother was born in Loveland, I was born in uh, Malcolm Grow Hospital in Andrews Air Force Base, which is now, I think, Joint, Joint Base Andrews, just yeah. outside of Washington, D.C. So I am not a native. I guess I'm technically a semi-Southerner born south of the Mason-Dixon line in Maryland. So. Wow. <laughs> Can't you tell from the accent? So. <laughs> Absolutely. I think that's been the most complex uh, story that we've had. I know Andrea Sampson, when we had her on, hers was she was born here and then moved and then came back and right. was a quasi-native transplant person. So I have those deep roots, but I was not born in Loveland or in Colorado. Got it. So when did you come back to Colorado then? You said that, you're, that you went to high school at Thompson Valley. That's right. So... I'm, I'm not going to knock you too hard. Um, class of 85. So. Uh, yeah, I was not class of 85, but I graduated <laughs> from Loveland High. So. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah, we, well, we actually came back in 1969 and lived in Loveland for a while. And then in uh, Wyoming for several years. Uh, and then after being blown around for a while, we came back to Fort Collins and then Loveland again. Okay. And so finished high school here. So and then not far away from the very spot we are recording. Wow. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about your business. Tell us because um, you didn't make a whole lot of waves, but you did sign on with Chef Clay when he was battling the phase red, the back to phase red, and saying no, we need to stand up. And yours was one of the businesses that is not a restaurant, is not a bar that said, you know, I'm going to join forces with these guys because what's happening to them should not be happening. That's a good way to put it. I mean, of course, we followed the protocols in our office, too. Um, but I knew these people personally, and I knew the kind of businesses they ran, and I knew how much they cared about public health and about their role in the community. And I think we all wanted to give the authorities the benefit of the doubt for a while, but when we saw there didn't seem to be any connection necessarily between the metrics that they used and the, the orders that came down. And believe me, early on in this, one of the big elements of my law practice was reading all these public health orders and trying to help some of my business clients scramble and figure out how to comply. Everybody wanted to comply and uh, do his or her part, but it got to a point where the economic damage and the public health damage to people who were losing their jobs and losing their livelihoods, in my judgment, was much greater and any marginal improvement in, in the public health benefit from fighting COVID. So take me in. What, uh, what type of lawyer are you? Well, <laughs> <laughs> pause for people to insert their favorite adjectives here. But, uh, <laughs> I, I try to be a, a principled lawyer, of course. I think I've got an important responsibility. But I'm more of a counselor type lawyer, the sort that you'd call a solicitor in, in the United Kingdom instead of a barrister. Do you focus on a particular aspect of law? I do. I, I talk to people about their businesses, about important real estate transactions, and about um, planning to protect their families. So it's fair to say I do a lot of work with small businesses, helping people structure those and buy and sell them. I do a lot of work in real estate, negotiating commercial leases or helping with complex sales or solving access problems. 
Um, and then I do a lot of counseling people on estate planning. So how, what assets do you have? What's your family structure like? What are your goals like? How do we protect what you've got? Uh, transfer it the right way with a minimum of cost. So I don't go to the courtroom very much. It's usually only for uh, probate matters to help people deal with the aftermath of somebody who's passed away, make sure things happen the right way, and we hope that that's no more complicated than it needs to be. Have you seen an uptick with COVID? I, and I guess to give you a little bit of background with this is with the amount of deaths that have come out of COVID and the lack of, of being able to um, to finalize that death. I know I had a good friend of mine that he lost he lost his father to COVID early on in March, and it wasn't until August that we were actually able to have the memorial or that they were able to have the memorial. I was lucky enough to be able to be in attendance, but even at that, it was much smaller than it should have been. Um, is that playing into probate? Is that playing into with the courts being shut down? And how does that impact everything moving forward for these families? I've seen disruptions like that and uh, just the grief of people unable to visit loved ones in, in uh, long-term care facilities, nursing homes, rehabilitation centers. That's, that's been pretty devastating. They haven't been able to have that important con contact with each other. And there have been situations like you describe Fortunately, we're able to do a lot of this virtually and online, and we don't have to do a lot of in-person work for the vast majority of people to help administer these things. But certainly trials and hearings have been pushed back. Um, I have a situation where an estate is pleading with one of the beneficiaries to please stop squatting in the property, but there's nothing we can do. The evictions have been uh, postponed. And that's a terrible situation for a family to go through even in normal times. Um, again, I keep the confidences, and I will only tell these stories in general terms, but uh, yeah. mm -hmm. it's, there's, a, there's a lot of suffering out there because of the lack of connection. I can't say I've seen an elevated number of people passing away, particularly, but the circumstances of it have been more difficult for more people. I do think a lot more people have been nudged by the circumstances of the past year or so into wanting to take care of their estate planning, make sure they get good advice and make sure things are in order. I was going to ask you about that. Have you seen people actually being willing to talk about end of life? Because I know I have a couple of buddies that, are, that sell insurance and life insurance and that sort of stuff. And any time that they broach the topic of life insurance, especially with anybody under the age of about 45, nobody wants to have that conversation. You know, everybody's still thinking that they're relatively invincible. And with COVID and the impact of COVID, has that changed the dynamic in the overall discussion that people are having? And they're willing to actually talk about end of life and what, what, they, what their wishes are and what they want to leave their families. I think there has been a nudge, Alex, in that regard for some people. Uh, it's kind of one of my long-running jokes, though. I say talking about this does not change the odds one way or another. And if you want, <laughs> you want my professional opinion, there's a 100% chance that each one of us will die eventually. So all kidding aside, we have some tough, morbid conversations to have sometimes. Yeah. So. yeah. Uh, you know, I, I was curious to hear about, um, you know, you were saying you help people set up businesses and all of that stuff. Have you seen a decrease in that? I mean. That's a good question. I think if I had... If you put me on the spot, I'd, and to, to guess, I'd say yes. 
Right, because mm -hmm. people aren't opening small businesses. It's not even a re reality. Tough time in a headwind, although easy for me to say, sometimes that's the best time in retrospect. So you mentioned something earlier about like long-term care and visiting your relatives and stuff. Mm -hmm. How does that impact what you do? I'm thinking more of the effect on people who simply can't see elderly relatives that they're isolated. I and yeah, okay. I was just curious if there was something that it, it had impacted that area. And I, I've talked to clients on the, the telephone who were stuck in their rooms and did not have any of the, the social events or family visitation that they had enjoyed in these facilities before. Um, we've made some masked and, and gloved field trips yeah. when there were end-of-life situations, and some things had to be done sort of at the last minute. Well, as we're kind of in a down moment within the podcast Sorry talking about, about death and all of this stuff that. Like, that um, makes me so sad. have you have you also seen divorce rates have you seen that tick up or because people that uh you know fell in love and then didn't realize that they'd have to spend you know a year in inside with their spouse has that changed the dynamic i'm not a divorce <laughs> lawyer uh <laughs> fair <laughs> enough but put me on the spot on that one about the only work i do that's related to that is i actually help people uh, draft marital or prenuptial agreements, believe it or oh. not, but okay. because that has a lot of business and estate planning and real estate elements to it many, many times. But um, anecdotally, yes, definitely an increase in, in divorces, and that's, that's saddening. That's probably another public health cost that doesn't always get measured in the statistics that we see. Yeah, I would tend to agree with that. I think uh, just the reality of what we dealt with last year and, and into this year right now is, is really going to have a lot of fallout. We're going to see a lot of changes. Yeah. So how, how has this affected your business overall? How is COVID? How is 2020? What, how has your business ebbed and flowed with it? Well, I have no complaints because it's been easier for me to adjust than many of my clients and many of the people that I care for and respect in this community. We increased remote work. Um, Obviously, we social distance at the office. We disinfect regularly. We have, we follow the guidelines for masking and contact that the county health department has put out. But it's actually easier for me to do my work in a mix of remote and in person than it is for many people. So we've adapted. Um, we've given advice to clients who had a harder time adapting. And we've watched as so many people have, have suffered. And no matter how hard they worked, they're laboring under rules that make it impossible for their, their business to, to survive. So I'm grateful that we've had plenty of work to do and we've been able to help people in the community. And I've also regretted that sometimes it's just, I can't do any more for these businesses that are hamstrung by these rules. And now I see a, like, you were, I'm supposed to cheer you up after this talk about <laughs> death. And now I'm gonna start talking about, I, I see a wave, unfortunately, of commercial evictions and, yeah. You know, these businesses just cannot get by any longer and paying the rent, and the landlords can't forbear too long because they've got to turn around and pay their lenders. And yeah. I'm afraid a couple more shoes are dropping here soon Yes, in our business community. Not only in business, as I, I see it very much so on the residential side of things, is with the moratorium on rent and with the moratorium on evictions, and looking at it, I think this is going to be a major bubble that we have to deal with in 2021. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting to see some of the executive orders that are coming out of the Biden administration dealing with this. 
um, because of how many people are on forbearance with their own residential mortgages and seeing what they're doing. There have been some phenomenal lenders out there that are very easily saying, hey, you're on forbearance. We'll give you a couple of different options. We can move those those um, move payments, the payments back to the end of the loan. To the yeah. end of the loan, mm-hmm. just extend it, do a loan modification, do something to bring you forward and make sure that you can start making payments again. There are also some lenders that are just nasty that they aren't willing to work with mm-hmm. with people and it's far better for them they're looking at it going it's far better for us to foreclose and take this property take the equity in the property yeah. take the equity and then be able to sell this at a profit than what we're going to get from restructuring this loan i'm and afraid you're right i wish i had I, I read that those orders were coming out. I don't know the details yet. I think it's kind of all in flux right now, but we'll see what initially, they take. Yeah. yeah, initially it was supposed to be an executive order through the Biden administration, and now it's looking like it's going to be packaged with this next $1.9 trillion stimulus bill. I see. So, But I haven't had a chance. Uh, obviously, they haven't released any of the, the text on that. And after, I think I'm one of the few people that read every single line of the, of <laughs> the CARES Act and then the HEROES Act and the atro- atrocity that they both of those acts were. And I'm glad that the HEROES Act did not pass because there was so much in that bill that was completely and utterly unrelated to what's happening with COVID. And we're starting to see this happen again with this $1.9 trillion bill that they're talking about right now. Um, So dive in for us a little bit as far as just what are the unspoken impacts that 2020 has had? I think we've talked about some of them. Just uh, we talk about the narrow public health impact of COVID, but what about Increased alcoholism and, and drug abuse. As and, we're drinking beers. Thanks well, for that. Well, it's, <laughs> this should be a sponsor. This High Hops is a terrific place. It makes me think of gardening coming up in the spring, too. Right. It's so. a delicious beer. But you're jumping know. ahead. This is That's <laughs> we'll what we talk about with the, the beer of the week. So. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, just wanted to assure people I was just responsibly consuming a local product here, and um, but, but still concerned about the stress and strain Yeah, many people are under. And uh, I see aspects of that. I live downtown. I work downtown. I walk all over downtown. And I am always sensitive to the number of transient uh, folks who are, how do I describe it? Literally, their belongings on their back or pushing a shopping cart, making lap after lap in our downtown. Mm -hmm. Um, My mother's worked at the day shelter for the homeless for decades now. And so she's had a front row seat, and we've talked about it over the years, but I've seen an increase in that, too. So I, I've got to stop you real quick because you did bring up grocery carts. And one of the things that I know is on your Facebook is pictures of shopping carts in random areas. I'm sure you're just consuming or you're just confusing <laughs> the, uh, the listeners right now. Alex, <laughs> no, they seem to find me. I, maybe it's because I do all that walking, but... Uh, You'd be surprised how many locations in Loveland have strangely positioned shopping carts, and sometimes I happen to capture them. (laughs) Are they they artsy pictures of shopping carts? I need to know. I guess you'll be the judge, but I think some of them are. I'm going to take a look. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's great. I try to hashtag them, so (laughs) see see what you can find. I like it. And I know you walk all over, and it doesn't matter. It doesn't seem to matter how cold it is, because we were talking while you were walking home last night, and it was, what, 10 degrees? Oh, that's, yeah. That's 12 right. degrees outside? It's, it's, it's not that far. It was, I need good. the exercise after sitting in that chair for too long. So. <laughs> it makes you walk faster anyway, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. 
more aerobic. So how long have you been in Loveland? I know you said that you came back and that sort of stuff, but how long have you been in Loveland, working in Loveland, all of that? That's a good question. I came back to Larimer County after law school. I went to law school in Denver. And so that was 1996. I've been practicing law that long now. Wow. Wow. Okay, 25 years. It's <laughs> um, a good number. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and that was originally in Fort Collins, but then I came back to practice in Loveland. Didn't actually move back to city limits until, um, what was it, 2006. That I finally made the return to city limits of Loveland. But, yeah, I deep roots here. Lived here many years off and on. Uh, after high school, of course, I lived all different places. Colorado Springs and Denver and North Carolina and Washington, D.C. and France and some other places. So, I like how you just tossed in in France. Yeah. That it wasn't <laughs> that long. So. But, uh, yeah, having some familiarity with French language is certainly very useful in Loveland, Colorado. So, <laughs> so let's uh, let's go away from the pessimism a little bit. As you said, that you yeah. are in the short term pessimistic, but in the long term optimistic. What do you see in the future as far as the overall fallout and everything that we're dealing with? As far as where is the optimism, or I guess what optimism do you have? What are some of the, those areas? Well, appreciate you saying that. That's a good twist. I, I was a history teacher, and um, I know that these things don't inevitably come in exact cycles, but they do come in cycles. And our society seems inherently to go through moments of convulsion and conflict when the institutions that were set up many years before start to fail because they really are just perpetuating themselves. The problems they were designed to solve have been long solved, and there are new problems coming up. So our politicians have to finally stop fighting the battles of the 80s and 90s and realize it's a different world. Our cultural institutions have to adapt. New generations have to come up with energy and say, we're ready to change these things. And so why would our era now be any worse than it was 40 years ago when we were uh, at the end of a Great Depression and the beginning of a great war for the United States, a war that we really were, was a world war that we were just joining late in the party? Why are these times any worse than the divisive 1850s and the war of the 1860s and a divisive reconstruction in the years afterward? So we go through these convulsions where what we set up to make things work starts to fail. And it's tough to go through those times of crisis and failure and collapse and war and struggle. But strangely enough, the generations find different ways to deal with it. Um, the tough middle, middle-aged generations find a way to mentor the young ones. The young adults come into their own and solve the problems. The children watch that and think about how they can build on that as they grow up. So somehow, I think we'll find our way through these struggles and these crises too. And I don't know what the institutions will be yet, but we will break through some of the uh, sclerosis, right? We'll break through some of the, the things that are holding us back and we'll build new institutions that uh, take us somewhere better. That, that was a wonderful answer. That was very <laughs> optimistic. I like yeah, it. I sound like a monologue. I'm like, I better, <laughs> no, I I wanted, better stop, but at least I'm not so pessimistic anymore, right? So. I wanted you to keep talking. That's okay. lovely. <laughs> it sort of made my heart feel a little better. You know, it, we're trying to it, it broach this whole new year and it just felt that it was fantastic. Thank you. Well, that's too kind, but yeah. I did want to give an honest answer to why I'm short-term pessimistic, and I will describe collapse, and I will tell you I don't like a lot of things I see, but deep down I think we'll find a way through. 
I like that. And it's interesting seeing our younger generation and how they're responding and how they're reacting to this. So you have, you very much have the millennials, which I think a lot of millennials just became a little bit more alcoholic during this time, um, as you had said it so earlier, <laughs> of just dealing with I'm it. I'm Gen X, Alex. I don't know about you. <laughs> I, I would say that I, unfortunately, am a millennial. I, would, I was guessing <laughs> you fell within the range, yeah. Yes, within that range. But then also seeing what's coming out of just even music. Um, you know, my wife and I had this conversation where even in early 2000s, you look at the music that came out of that area. You had System of a Down, BYOB, and some of the, the major just anthems as far as that strike a chord with the frustration of the war, the frustration of what we were dealing with, mm -hmm. and how you have the change now where with music, it seems like a, a lot of the, the new music is coming off of TikTok. <laughs> oh, <TikTok>. <laughs> <laughs> it's coming off of social media and some of it's fantastic but it doesn't seem like we have those ballads from the 70s the 80s the 90s or even early 2000s to really drive even music i you know alex we always have this <clears throat> blind spot for new music that we get kind of locked <laughs> in the golden age i mean i'm going to talk about duran duran and uh meatloaf you know, the, uh, the early 80s ballad. British invasion. So no. I mean, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, we, we're attached to that kind of music, and it speaks to us at different times. And different eras do produce different music like that. I think there's a lot of great new music coming out, and I've been disappointed that um, uh, our live venues have been shut down. Because yeah. even with little kids at home, we always made a point to try to support some local bands and, well, even and new in, music. Even in Loveland on Thursday nights um, around the lagoon. Oh, oh yeah. yeah, that was great. Mm -hmm. And being able to hear live music, and that's kind of gone by the wayside right now because of COVID. Wendy Wu is back at Better oh, Gumbo, though, on yeah. Tuesday night, so don't don't miss Wendy Wu. Love Wendy Wu. Yeah, she's, she's terrific. And then Black and Blues Music and Brews downtown seems to be cautiously hosting some bands again. I'm so excited to see that venue open up on Cleveland, but... These aren't sponsors yet, are they? I'm just throwing no. out random names. <laughs> well, I'm, no, I'm that's excited awesome. to you, see the Joe O'Brien band play again. Joe O'Brien. love seeing those guys play. What a great, yeah, what a great local. I think uh, my wife saw Steve Manchel the other day. So Ooh. Steve's a great, great uh, part of the local scene, too. So That's awesome. And I miss Acoustic Eidolon, but they've had some stuff online. We love their Christmas show every year, so... Could I name check some more local bands? I don't, sorry about <laughs> Feel that. Feel free. Let me go back to the 80s I and heard, talk about that music. Too, I so. heard a rumor that you uh, just like to create band names. Yeah, I didn't bring any of them with me, Alex, <laughs> but I tend to post them occasionally on Facebook. I, it's just one of my public service things here. I'm, I could sing back up and play tambourine, but I'm more on the producing legal side, so I might as well serve the what music. What about the triangle? Oh, tri yeah. Broad range of percussion, yeah. <laughs> Sign me up. <laughs> so cowbell, triangle, tambourine, anything of that, you're the guy. I'm yeah. the guy. Perfect. So <laughs> um, so I actually have a follow-up question from something you said earlier. You were talking about um, it, some good things that are coming out of COVID, right? And, and um, you were talking about how your business has restructured. And I'm curious to find out if you'll keep some of those things in place. I think it's a great question, and there's no going back. Um, I think there's no substitute for meeting with people and looking them in the eye. I had a long court hearing not long ago that was all remote. And on one of the screens, we had four people at a table 
wearing masks. And so that we had two attorneys and one party and uh, an expert witness. And I, when they testified, I thought, how can, you, how can the judge evaluate this testimony, the speck on a screen behind a mask? There's something about being in the courtroom mm-hmm. and looking at the demeanor and taking in the entirety of the person's testimony that I think helps the lawyers and the judge evaluate that testimony. So I, I think we have to go back to that in person, but I think a lot of things we've realized can be done differently and more efficiently, and perhaps those will stay. If I want to comment on the macro scene, a couple months ago, I think, you know where State Farm's regional headquarters is, Promontory, on the way to Greeley, where the yep. business and the bypass yep. split? Yep, they're on the north side of uh, 34. They announced that they were just going, not going to renew their lease. They don't need all that office space anymore. And they said that was true for all their regional centers, like this around the country. So I can't help but think that if I were in that uh, business of those kinds of office buildings, or if I were developing retail centers that weren't anchored by grocery stores, I'd be a little concerned about the future of that kind of real estate. So there are advantages in learning to do things things differently, but there are going to be challenges with all this empty real estate and big changes in how how people... operate and manage their businesses and run their lives. Yeah, we figure out a new way to do things. And I, I, I would imagine that the, the courtroom, that, that to me would seem very strange, Like if you're especially a very serious testimony, they have a mask on and you, they're on a screen. <laughs> I, you know, when you talk about that, I just think of the opening scene to Hitch, the movie with Will Smith. Okay, I um, remember this. As yeah. you go back, so <laughs> if you, I, it's a little bit older movie, um, but the opening scene to Hitch, you have where he's talking about um, just even what you're saying. And he's and he boils everything down to says essentially 90% of what you're saying isn't coming out of your mouth. <laughs> and what having a mask, what being on Zoom, all of these things you don't get the true intention or expression. It's basically the difference between a text message versus a phone call versus an in-person conversation. There's like, no substitute for it sometimes to be face to face with people. I agree. Yeah. Awesome. Um, well, I, I just I was just thinking of the scene from A Few Good Men. <laughs> oh. <laughs> that that separates us by a little bit of a generation. Court, courtroom right. dramas here. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm smack in the dab middle of you guys. So, uh, yeah, I, I just, uh, I, Tom Cruise <laughs> yelling. <laughs> That's all. We can't handle the truth. Yeah, exactly. I was like, well, uh, <laughs> now where I went with that. Awesome. Did you have any topics that you wanted to discuss? Well, I, I felt like I kind of got a little carried away on a, on a few of these so uh, feel free I didn't come here this is why we love doing podcasts is because instead of just a couple of pointed questions it's all long form and the whole point of this is to have a conversation and being able to dive into topics that you wouldn't normally think of well I'm kind of a even though I'm a lawyer I'm supposed to be a loud mouth I'm kind of an introvert you know I'm not the <laughs> loudest guy and I like my counseling job where uh, you know it's not exactly Aaron Brockovich in our office but Got another movie reference in there. There it is, right <laughs> there. Not exactly Aaron Brockovich, but, um, you know, I think day by day we just try to hear people where they are and match their goals with what the law requires, and so I've got to be a good listener. But um, I That's actually, a rarity in this day and age. Well, and I don't, I'm sure I don't always succeed perfectly, but I keep trying to do that and remember that is the core of what I have to do, that I'm an advocate, yes, but I'm also a, a counselor and... Uh, I hope a, a good, 
help and teacher as well. So but beyond that, I I have kind of come out of my shell a little bit, Alex. I've <laughs> I I don't have the sophisticated production operation that you have here, but I have started doing YouTube videos. And I with my alter ego, the reactionary hippie. So I, I might as well plug that since I think I've got all of 27 subscribers or something to That's it That's awesome. So the reactionary hippie, where... <laughs> right. what's, your, what's your stick? What do you do? Well, I, I, perhaps I'm not sophisticated enough to have a shtick yet, but uh, <laughs> the whole idea is to say I, I got to comment on this stuff, but I also got to relate it to other things. So I, I sometimes it's politics, but sometimes it's, it's gardening. Sometimes it's self-sufficiency. Sometimes it's talking about how this crisis gives us an opportunity to rethink who we are and maybe think, well, we're not just consumers. We're not just numbers. Maybe this gives us a chance to reconnect with neighbors. Maybe when we're stuck at home, we can learn more skills. My wife and I love to garden and can and do kind of nerdy introvert stuff like that. <laughs> but the kids love it. The kids are learning incredible things. You know, we live in the middle of downtown Loveland. We got four wonderful chickens producing eggs. So I kind of want to <laughs> spread the gospel of you can live on a downtown lot and have more cucumbers than you can handle to can for pickles. <laughs> you know, you can you can um, have chickens, but no roosters. Those nope. are illegal in the city limits. No <laughs> roosters. I know you're out there. I hear them, but uh, we have no roosters. Uh, so, yeah, Rectioner Hippie's trying to mix, I suppose, cultural commentary from some provincial lawyer with tips on, hey, you know, you can do it. In tough times, get out there and learn a new skill and fall on your face sometimes, but remember that uh, that's part of being human. So the reactionary hippie is trying to lead people down that road. I love that. And uh, you talk about kind of making the best of bad things. My favorite, my favorite company in the overall story is A1 Steak Sauce. The reason why is in the middle of the Civil War in 1863 is when A1 Steak Sauce was established. <laughs> Well, the fact that you have in the middle of the Civil War, what is now a staple on most steakhouses and everything else, a, a steak sauce that has survived the test of time is just a testament to what you can do through 2020. Well, knowing something about the scandalous quality of, of meatpacking on government contracts for our for the Union armies. I'm not surprised they needed a good steak sauce to cover it up sometimes. I'm interested. you got to dive into this yeah. a little bit more. Cause uh, I, I Confederates just... had it even worse in terms of logistics and the food supply. But, uh, yeah. Oh, just you know how it is. Government contracting, notorious. Just, just the way it was. Some of those contracts, the uh, uniforms and the... And the hard tack and the canned meat weren't quite as good as they should have been. <laughs> so why A1 succeeded? That, that's what I'm saying. Brilliant. Say, steak, this meat is terrible. we got to have a great sauce to, so people can, can not... Good for you, A1, hanging in there all those years. You say, are you looking for a sponsor, Alex? I can yes. No, not at all. I just, I absolutely love it. When, when people talk, yeah. you know, we here at the Native and the Transplant, we started a podcast in the middle of 2020. And we started a production company and everything that goes along with that. And I had a lot of people that just kind of look at you, look at me and say, why? <laughs> Do it. I think it's great. I, I started my law firm in October uh, 2001. So. Oh, 
Wow. Wow. Yeah. yeah. There was quite a shadow hanging over us then, too. So there's opportunity. Absolutely, there is. Well, John, Mark, thank you for joining us. I, I greatly appreciate it. And hopefully you'll stick around for our next segment, Beer of the Week. Well, you two are very kind. You're great hosts. And I'll, <laughs> I'll, with this wonderful local product here, I'll certainly stick around. Awesome. Excellent. So um, before we get into that, our last sponsor of the show is Colorado Drone and Media. So Colorado Drone and Media, they are available for all of your drone and media needs. So whether you are wanting to create a podcast, looking to sell your home and have drone footage taken, um, doing a special event that you might want some aerial photos taken, uh, definitely reach out to Colorado Drone and Media. The easiest way to contact them is on social media. Just search for them on Facebook. All right, so now the best segment. Uh, you know, we had a little bit of ups and downs throughout the interview and all of that stuff as far as the pessimism and the optimism. I love that. Um, best, best part of the podcast is good old beer of the week. And this week, we have not had um, these guys on before. It's High Hops Brewery out of Windsor. Yeah, if you have not been to High Hops, honestly, uh, I hope you get a chance to go out there. They have a fantastic brew room. I, I know with COVID, it's going to be altered. And Alex just told me um, recently that the reason they started canning was because of COVID. And it, truth be told, I love their beers because I think that they, um, they're they not offensive, but they have a good, clean, crisp flavor. So and what are the beers that we have this week? Um, all right, so I brought a the Hoppy One. Uh, which is an Indian pale ale. And then I also brought the blueberry wheat, which is a wheat ale with blueberries. And that happens to be one of my favorites that they do. So, so you just figured that you just bring your favorite beer? Well, um, I'm not really a beer drinker <laughs> anymore. <laughs> truth, truth be told, I had to kind of steer away from beer for a little while just because uh, some stuff going on. Um, and I, uh, don't, don't, I don't do a lot of gluten anymore. Hmm. So, uh, but the blueberry wheat is really good. And I know that Alex enjoys an IPA. So I wanted to bring Absolutely. something to the table that was good. So. Well, thank you for bringing these. Yeah, they, they've been fantastic. I had actually not tried the blueberry wheat yet, but I'm interested. What are your thoughts on the IPA? Uh, I'm not giving the wheat a fair shake because I'm not a fan of, of wheat beers typically. <laughs> this time of year, I really like good brown ale or a bitter, okay. English bitter. But I have to say, there's kind of a hops arms race with uh, IPAs. And even though this is, we're warned this is the hoppy one, I think it is hoppy but very well balanced. So um, I, I, you get leery of some modern IPAs. It's like they're trying to load as many hops in as possible and unbalance the beer. This is this terrific local IPA. So Yes, and so with High Hops Brewery, the one thing, how I got introduced to them was it was a buddy of mine that took me. He's like, hey, there's, there's a, uh, a brewery in a garden center. What and a great combination. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's fantastic. I love it. Yeah, they, they grow their yeah. own hops, uh, a lot of hops there and that sort of stuff. But um, they did, the only time I've seen it done, which was they, they called it a fresh hop beer. And so they had a French press with fresh hops in it. They pulled o poured over their double IPA. And then you let it steep. And then after about 10 minutes, you push it down. And then you pour yourself a fresh hop beer. It was amazing. And the amount... It was probably the most aromatic beer that I have ever had in my life, and that was at High Hops. That, that was my introduction to these guys. That's great. Well, I, it should be noted that I do not like hops at all. However. <laughs> you did try the IPA today, which I, I am proud I of you. I did. Yeah, well, I figured I would start it out with the IPA. You're, I'm not going to bring a beer and not talk about it, okay? <laughs> and here's the thing. Um, honestly, it, I, I made some little notes here. Uh, the hops was, like Jean-Marc said, um, 
super balanced, right? I didn't just get hit in the face with hops because that's the thing I don't like. Um, nice, crisp, and refreshing. I could sit out in the backyard, maybe mow the lawn or something like that, you know, drink this beer, and I didn't. I wasn't unhappy with it at all. And truth be told, it, this is something I would drink again, which is a miracle because I don't like IPAs. <laughs> That works. High praise. That's great. Yeah. Yes. So there you go. You have, uh, as far as the beers of the week from High Hops Brewery, you've got their blueberry wheat, their wheat ale with blueberries. And it's actually uh, relatively low alcohol content as well. So you can enjoy a few of those at 4.8. And then the other one is their uh, the hoppy one from High Hops, which is their IPA. And that one's actually not too bad for an IPA at 5.8. So yeah, not too bad. Definitely. So, Alex, hold on. Okay. What did you think of the blueberry? Blueberry? Uh, you know. Um, not his brand. It was actually, uh, I'm, I'm right there with John Mark. I'm not a big fan of the wheat beers. Mm -hmm. um, but for this one, it didn't, the thing that I loved about it is it's not an, it doesn't taste like an artificial blueberry. Oh, for sure. This so is many like, of them, you know, it, yeah. it's not like a Pop-Tart. It's not like a blueberry Pop-Tart where you just have that artificial flavor that just sticks with you. This one is actually just, it, it's very fresh. It's like you ate a couple of blueberries and had a graham cracker. That, that's a great description. I, I, I tend to be madly in love with blueberry anything. So <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> uh, I, 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 by nature, I was going to like this one. But I liked this one because it wasn't overly sweet, too. There's a sweet kick to it, but it's not so overwhelming that, like, you know, some heavy coconut porter that you're just drowning in coconut. Yeah. So. yeah, unless you nice. like coconut. So, <laughs> no, awesome. So that is our beer of the week. Definitely uh, go check out High Hops Brewery if you had not checked them out before. And they're uh, right into Windsor. As, you, as soon as you come down into Windsor, they're just on the north side of Main Street. So definitely reach out to them. Well, again, John Mark, thank you so much for being here. Um, it was great hearing your insight and getting a little bit different opinion. I know most people hear the, the term lawyer and they, uh, they pucker up a little bit. <laughs> well, glad that wasn't the case here. You two are wonderful hosts and I'm, I'm delighted to have had the chance to be here. Awesome. So, uh, thank you for tuning in this week. And as always, we will see you next week. I am the native Alex Johnson. And I am the transplant Jen Bryant. Have a great one. We'll see you next week. Thank you.